1967, two psychiatrists, Thomas Holmes and Richard Ray, examined the medical records of over 5,000 patients specifically to determine if stress could cause illness. They came up with a list of what they called 43 life events, and then they surveyed those patients. The study determined conclusively the answer was yes. Anxiety, stress, can be a contributing, significant contributing factor to illness. In fact, through the study, those life events were ranked. It became part of what is known today as the uh, Holmes and uh, Ray stress scale. I I won't give you all 43, but the top five stressors for adults on the list were death of a spouse, divorce, marital separation. I find that interesting how the top three had to do with marriage, not stress from having a spouse, but from not having one. Imprisonment, and then death of a close family member. It's also interesting to note as you look at the top five, the number of those that are relational, and not necessarily physical or financial, that's usually what we think of, think of stress, job-related, things like that. No, it's relational. The top five things for non-adults, children, teens, were, were quite similar. Death of a parent, an unplanned pregnancy or abortion, getting married, that'll bring some stress, uh, divorce of parents, and then fifth, acquiring a physical deformity, whatever that means. Uh, again, though, I want you to notice the relational elements. It seems that Well, specifically, family relationships are the contributing factor to stress. In fact, I I found one source that categorized, that put in categories, uh, stress-related issues, and number one on the list was relationships. I did some further research, which really means that I read a few more articles on the internet. Uh, For example, I I read an article that that talked about how to manage stress. You might want to write these things down because these are insightful. Um, One article said this, avoid stressful situations. That's very helpful. Avoid extremes. Change how you react to stress. I mean, I guess that means don't have it. Uh, Manage how stress affects you. Discover... New relaxation techniques, I kind of like that one, sleep or exercise. Now, what do you do, though, if you can't sleep? The point is everybody has stress, and everybody wants to know how to deal with it. I found some unhealthy ways to deal with stress, which they suggest most people actually choose. They are smoking, drinking, Overeating, my personal favorite, zoning for hours in front of the TV, or drugs, both legal and illegal drugs. Top five. Another thing I discovered. In 2012, Gallup surveyed 350,000 people. That is, that is a huge sampling. 350,000 people throughout the U.S. at random. And they asked the question, are you stressed? According according to the results, the U.S. state with the least no answers, meaning the state with the least stress, according to its residents, 
for the fifth year, they've done this five years in a row now, for the fifth year in a row was Hawaii, of course. So if you want to live a stress-free life, move to Hawaii. The other top states were in order, Louisiana. What? I mean, I guess they didn't call them in September. Mississippi, Iowa, and Wyoming. Because there's nothing to do in Wyoming. The worst states for stress in order were West Virginia, Rhode Island, Kentucky, Utah, and Massachusetts. So, having just spent a week in Hawaii, thanks to your very gracious gift to us, thank you, um, I have to say that Hawaii might get my vote. But then again, there was the first day of our time there. We had arrived at our condo at 8 p.m. on Monday evening. At 5.30 the next morning, we were wide awake, time change and all of that. So we got up, made some coffee. We're, we were sitting on the third floor balcony. They call it the lanai. We were enjoying the view of the ocean, you know, big turtles and, and uh, humpback whales and all of that. A few minutes later, we heard a commotion. And, and Tana glanced to our right. I couldn't see, but she glanced to our right just in time to see a man jump headfirst off his balcony a few doors down. I ran downstairs. I won't describe it other than to say he died first morning. I guess suicide is one way to deal with stress or problems, even in paradise. All that to say, even Hawaii may not be, Hawaii may not be the answer to your stress or your depression or whatever problems you're facing today. So how then do we deal with stress? How do we deal with anxiety, especially that stress that comes from relationships? Let me ask it this way. What is causing you anxiety right now? What, or maybe better asked, who keeps you awake at night? Why couldn't you sleep last night? How do you deal with it? Paul tells us how as we jump into our text uh, this morning in our study of Philippians. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 as I take a couple of minutes to review where we are. We, we know by now that the church at Philippi had a very special place in Paul's heart. He started that church during his second missionary journey, and they seem to have maintained a very close relationship. It had been over 10 years now. When, when they heard, when Philippi heard about his imprisonment in Rome, they sent Epaphroditus to see how he was doing and then also to send him a financial gift. But when Epaphroditus came to see Paul, he also brought some news about some division in the church. We don't really know what caused the division, but Paul's constant references to unity, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the gospel, alert us that this is a problem there. Now, the last time we were together, a few weeks ago, Paul finally seemed to address the two leaders of this division. There were two women. He said this in chapter 4 as we started it. He said, I urge you, Odea, and I urge Suntuke to live in harmony with the Lord. Live in harmony. 
Indeed, true companion, that's probably, might be Luke, I guess. I ask you to help, help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel. He, he writes, he said, would you, would you please live in harmony? And in church, would you do whatever is necessary to help these women who once stood side by side with me in the cause of the gospel? Would you help them to come back together again? Let me put the outline of the book on the screen for you this morning, uh, because you'll notice in, in chapter four, that's Roman numeral seven there that, that we've started. I, I've, I've titled that, as most people do, Final Instructions, and we're nearing the end of the letter where Paul does what he typically does, he kind of starts giving these final commands. It's almost, it almost seems like if we're not careful, it almost seems like Paul's saying, hey, I'm kind of running out of time. I got my time in the yard. I got to go. So I'm just going to write out a few miscellaneous items in staccato fashion. Through verse 9, he is going to say things like, do this, do this, do that, do this. For example, this morning, we'll see the following three imperatives, um, which will form our our outline. He's going to say, be joyful, or actually says it, rejoice. He's going to say, be gentle, that's as far as we'll get this morning. And then he's going to say, be prayerful, which, by the way, is the antidote to stress or anxiety. So if you want to know the antidote to stress, after my introduction, you've got to come back next week. There's another reason I put the outline on the screen is so that you know I want you to see that these are not unrelated items. Yes, he is going to give some final commands, but they are related to this issue of unity in the church. He started in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, I urge these women, will you please just get along? Verse 3, church, will you help these women get along? Verse 4 and following, I'm going to suggest are some ways that he's going to help us get along. Be joyful, be gentle, be prayerful. Now, he is going to expand his thoughts just a little bit. We'll see that this morning. So with that as a backdrop, let's read our text today. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7 say this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul has been telling this church throughout this letter, be unified. He finally addresses those two uh, apparent leaders of the faction behind which the the church seemed to have been lining up. It's It's not like what we have happened today. Today, if there's division in the church, we just go start another one. Or today, if we don't get along with someone, we just go to another church. They couldn't do that. There weren't any other churches. So, So Paul calls them out and says, here, Here are some things that you should do to promote this unity that I'm talking about. It is true that these are his final commands. He is going to broaden his application a bit, which we'll find application in our our families and in our community. First one, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice. Now, we know that joy has been a recurring theme throughout this book. It's like it's been a thread running throughout the book. And, and, and you know that I've said that joy 
must be independent of outward circumstances. And we, 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 but we, we, we're going to find, we're finding in Philippians that there is a context which can encourage joy. And, and, and let me just tell you, we'll get ready to review that right now. The context which encourages joy is the gospel and the work of the gospel in the lives of people. The first time we saw the word was in chapter one. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer. Notice here's the word, with joy in my every prayer for you all. Why? In view of your participation in the gospel. When Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, he does so with thanksgiving and joy because he remembers their partnership in the gospel. Later in chapter 1, he says, when I think of Christ being preached, even though I'm in the middle of prison, this brings me joy. And I'm going to continue to rejoice, even in my imprisonment, because it has turned out, my imprisonment has turned out for the greater good, the greater progress of the gospel. I hope you're seeing a theme here. The gospel and its work in the lives of people are the context that is the context that encourages joy. In chapter 2, he says, I want the gospel to have its work done in you so that it brings unity in the midst of division. And this, by the way, as the gospel is worked out in your midst, this will complete my joy. Uh, later, he says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, we saw that that means even if I die for the gospel, I, I, I will see it at work in your lives and I will rejoice. Verse 18 of chapter 2, for the first time, it's very interesting, he commands joy. Again, very interesting. Joy is commanded. You say, wait, wait, I thought joy was an emotion, just kind of happened. No. You make a decision as to whether or not you will be filled with joy. Because he says, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. That is, in that context, rejoice in the hope of the gospel no matter what's happening. Whatever happens, one author said it this way, when he says to rejoice, it is a defiant, nevertheless, I will rejoice. He began chapter 3 with, a, with the words, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Then he took a little aside to, to warn them about some false teachers he gets to chapter 4 and reminds them of, of, of this unity. Quit lining up behind these women. L listen, rejoice in the Lord. Don't miss the connection. If you rejoice in Christ and what he has done for us, if you remember Christ and his gospel, then you will stop these petty divisions. And I'm going to suggest this morning that that is true wherever you find yourself. If you are facing challenges, relational challenges that are keeping you up at night, in your homes, between family members, facing stress in relationships, I'm going to suggest that someone is not focusing on Christ. And if you will rejoice in who he is and what he has done for you, these petty divisions and jealousies will cease. Please notice, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't allow for any loopholes. He doesn't say rejoice unless you're facing some very difficult circumstances of life. 
Rejoice unless you've got a reason not to. He doesn't say that. He says rejoice always. And you might say, I can't rejoice. You have no idea what I'm going through. You might be right. I may not. But the truth is, he does. And we must remember that Paul is not writing while sipping a latte in Rome eating chocolate. He was writing from prison where he's chained to Roman soldiers, where he's been wrongly accused for the sake of the gospel. It was not pleasant. The reason they sent him the gift is because they didn't feed him. If, it, if, if somebody didn't bring him food, someone didn't bring him money, he died. And yet he could write of his own joy and theirs even in the midst of trial. Rejoice in the Lord always. You have no idea what? Rejoice in the Lord always. It's an antidote to stress. It's an antidote to anxiety. Peter said it this way in his first letter. Who, that is we Christians, we Christians are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation that we have we don't have fully yet. It's going to be revealed in the last time. In this knowledge of future salvation, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. Notice the word stressed is in there by various trials. And so Paul says rejoice always. And I'm going to suggest that this rejoicing joy should not be muted. In fact, I'll ask you, if people cannot see your joy in the Lord, is it there? Second, as you're focusing on Christ, rejoicing in Him, now, now listen to me. It will do something to you. It will change your character. It will make you Gentle. Look at verse 2. Uh, not verse 2, uh, uh, verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Very interesting. In the midst of division, Paul says, Will you please let your gentle spirit be known? And notice he just assumes that they had a gentle spirit. Because... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, that's interesting, peace, we're going to get to that next week, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we are filled with the Spirit, we are a joyful, gentle people. And if you are not a joyful, gentle person, then you are not Filled with the Spirit. Now, this word for gentle here is a bit difficult to capture in one word. It speaks of being gracious, kind, gentle, yielding, courteous, tolerant. Do, do those words describe you? Don't think of the person sitting next to you. Think of you. Let me say them again. It speaks of being gracious, kind, Gentle, yielding, courteous, tolerant. 
In fact, one translation has it, I like this, sweet reasonableness. I, I like that. That's good. Let your sweet reasonableness be known to all. Does that describe you? You see, Paul used this exact same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he said, I urge, now the, the, the church at Corinth was full of divisions, and he says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness, there's the word, of Christ. In other words, Paul used this word to describe the character of Christ. Jesus was this kind of gentle. You might be interested to know that there's only one time in the Gospels where Jesus gives a self-description. Only one time where he describes himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, when he says, I am gentle. Now, that's a different word, but it's related. I am gentle and humble in heart. When Je of all the things that Jesus could have said about himself, this is what he said. I want you to know I am gentle. Are you? If you want to be like Jesus, you will be gentle. Paul says one way to be united, to stop these divisions, is to be gentle, gracious, to show sweet reasonableness. Don't you think if we were filled with joy in this kind of gentleness that division in families, in the church, would stop? That's the point. But it is interesting to know that Paul says, let your gentleness, gentleness be known to all men. That's, way of his, that's his way of saying, let your gentleness be known both inside and outside the church. And I want to remind you that he is writing to a people who are suffering for, for the gospel. And suffering and opposition, and this is where I could have Pastor Sammy come back up here. Suffering and opposition have a way of making us defensive and maybe even harsh. Christians have no business being harsh, rude, or defensive. Read the qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Christians have no business being harsh, rude, and defensive. Paul says, let your gentleness be seen by all, even those people who oppose you and treat you unjustly. In other words, we are to be sweet, reasonable, gentle people, not only in here for an hour. I can maybe pull it together for an hour on Sunday morning. No, in the community and in our homes as well, in our neighborhoods, in our dorm rooms, at our workplaces. Christians should be gentle. Now, Paul follows this with a reminder that the Lord is near. That refers to either time or space, or, or perhaps both. What do I mean? The Lord is near could mean His return is close. It's right at hand. He, be gentle. James 5, 8 says it, says it this way. To a people who were suffering, he writes and says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. He's right around the corner. It could mean that, that's in time, or it could mean in space. He is near you right now. He is living in you by His Spirit. 
It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, this gentleness. So be gentle, either one. Because of the promise of his return and the current presence of Christ, we are to be joy-filled, gentle people. My question again is, does that describe you? I want to say that third point, be anxious for nothing, but instead be prayerful. I'm going to save that for, for next week. Let me pray for us. Father, we are called to be a different kind of people. We are, we are called to be a people of great joy. We are called to be a people of, of, of great gentleness, graciousness, sweet reasonableness. And, and, and we see this demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, in, in, a, in, a, in a world filled with division, we heard a report this morning of, of great division in the Middle East that's prophesied. But division in the church, it's, 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 so, it's so sad to think, Father, that, that, that many churches that exist today are the result of division. This ought not to be. Would, would you help us to be a unified, godly, gentle, joy-filled people? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Harmony in relationships in, in the church come as we focus on Christ and his gospel. This, this was this context of joy that I wanted to make sure that you understand. Our joy is a decision that is independent of outward circumstances.